We're continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians. I ask you to take your Bible and open there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read the section we're in, starting in verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 12 through 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to the end of that paragraph. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another And to everyone, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. This is the desire of Paul for the church, and it's the desire of Jesus Christ. As you read through the Gospels of Jesus, you realize that there's a distinction between people who are suffering physical ailments due to physical diseases and those who had some physical incapacity because of demons. Today, we may not be able to tell the difference in every case, but Jesus always knew the difference. There's an occasion recorded in Matthew and Luke where a man is brought to Jesus who is blind and mute. And many times that could have been the result of a sickness, but in this case, the condition was caused by a demon. And so Jesus, as we've come to expect, casts out the demon, and the man's sight is immediately restored, and he's able to speak. The crowds, obviously, were amazed at what he did. They began to murmur and ask among themselves, Is this, could this be the promised son of David, the one who will conquer Satan, the one who will undo the curse, and, and his fame continued to grow? The Pharisees, however, had a different response. Rather than acknowledge Christ's divine power and authority, they began to tell the people, The only reason this man casts out demons is because he himself is possessed and empowered by Satan, the ruler of the demons. So instead of attribute Jesus' power and plan to God, they attribute it to Satan. How did Jesus respond to that kind of accusation? His initial response was a very simple argument should be familiar to many of you. He said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. The principle is simple. In order for an institution to remain strong, there has to be unity. Jesus applied that principle to the healing. He's basically saying it would make no sense for Satan to possess this man and then Satan as well to send another man to deliver him. Even Satan understands that opposing agendas or competing objectives are going to work against the plan. And so what Satan knows is beneficial for his own kingdom, we know is also beneficial for the kingdom of God. Satan knows that as well. Unity is critical. And that's part of the reason that Satan directs so much of his attention against or trying to undo the unity of the church. And that's why so many epistles in the New Testament address that very issue. The loss of unity is a great danger to the church. As far as we can tell in, from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, strife and disunity wasn't a major problem for them, but it's always a threat. Paul is a faithful minister of Christ, and so he wants to address that. He's done it indirectly. Previously, he urged the church, you need to grow in love. That was in chapter 4. He also said you need to encourage one another, edify one another. We just saw that at the end of chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, uh, encourage one another with these words. That's 4.18. And then 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Keep doing what you're doing. The Thessalonian church was a healthy church. It was young. But it's a church that Paul commends. And he wants them to continue that path of health. And that includes unity. To that end, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5, very briefly address the relationship between the members of the church and the leaders. We took last week to talk about the assumption Paul makes concerning the leaders. Leaders are people who work hard. They, they work among the church. They're, they're accessible. They're near. They exercise biblical authority, and when necessary, they will give not just instruction, but correction. It'll be gentle, it will be loving, but it's all for the sake of protecting the church. Those were Paul's assumptions. He may have heard the report from Timothy, but his main exhortation, and our focus today, is going to be aimed at the members. What kind of relationship should a church member have with his leaders? If you study that question all by itself, one of the answers you'd get from the New Testament is submission. The church is expected to submit to its leaders at the highest level, that's the elders, the pastors. There are a couple passages that state that explicitly. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Submission is not a foreign idea to scripture. It is not a foreign idea to, to, to life and to society. And it's critical for every local church. 
Submission means you, you yield to someone else. You recognize their authority over you. you. One of the Greek words is hupo tasso. Hupo means under, tasso to arrange. You're, you're lining yourself up under the authority of this person. Submission does not mean that your life is less valuable. It doesn't mean your contribution matters less. It means that in terms of function, you're placing yourself under the authority of another. You, you listen to them and you obey them. Obviously, that authority can be abused by those in charge. It doesn't seem to be the case in the Thessalonian church. But he's urging them. We know from society, soldiers are supposed to submit to their commanders. The Bible tells us Christians are to, uh, Christians, children are to submit to their parents. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Citizens are to submit to the governing authorities. And the greatest example of submission is our own Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He's equal with God, the Father, in authority and power. But he humbled himself, submitted himself to the plan of the Father, ultimately dying on the cross. So again, submission does not mean you, your life is less significant or less valuable. It means that for the glory of God, you're going to accept the structure he's put in place. You will abide by it. But if you notice, the verses we're looking at today, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, don't use the word submit. The idea is implied, but Paul's emphasis is not on behavior or obedience. Every parent knows that their kid can do what their parents ask them to do, but can do it in a disrespectful way, right? Fine. I'll take out the trash. <laughs> the same is true for employees. You can obey your boss and not honor him. The good relationship between the group and the leaders is going to be marked not just by actions, but it's going to be expressed in an attitude. And that's Paul's focus here. 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13 give us it's one exhortation, but two aspects of it very closely related. I think he's just saying the same thing in different ways. The first exhortation is verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect. That's how the ESV translates it. We ask you to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Some translations say appreciate. Some translations say give recognition to or acknowledge the translations vary because the Greek word that Paul uses simply means to know something, to perceive it. So you might even have a footnote in your Bible that says literally to know them. That's the first exhortation. The second exhortation is verse 13. We also ask you, brothers, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The first exhortation is just one word in the Greek. The second exhortation has three distinct words. The first word, esteem, means to regard or to consider. It means that in your mind, you give something weight. You, you honor it. You, you elevate it. And then Paul strengthens that idea by giving us the degree to which we are to honor our leaders. He says, ESV says, very highly. Esteem them very highly. It's a word that means beyond measure, more than what's expected. Some of you know the, the, the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3. He says, the Lord will do abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. One of the words he uses there is the same word he uses here. He's calling the church to, to think highly of its leaders. 
And the third word Paul uses in verse 13 reminds us that the honor he has in mind is not intended to be detached from the leaders personally. In other words, we don't honor the leaders of a church in the same way we might honor the mayor or the governor or the president. Paul says we are to esteem them highly in love. In love. That preposition makes a difference. I think last week I made French toast for our FLG, for the family. When I make French toast, one of the ingredients is eggs. So you make French toast with eggs. But when you mix the batter, you mix it in the bowl. Eggs are an ingredient. The bowl is the vessel in which it all takes place. And so Paul here doesn't say respect your leaders with love as if love was simply another ingredient in your heart. He says you are to honor them or esteem them in love. Love is to be the atmosphere that dominates your attitude toward your leaders. So you respect them, you appreciate them, you honor them, but you do it all in love. In other words, love your leaders. Hopefully you can see the picture Paul is trying to paint. He's not just saying submit to your leaders, do what they tell you. He's saying love them. Have a relationship with them marked by care and appreciation. That's what marks a healthy church. Mother's Day just passed. Father's Day is coming. And all of us know that there are ways to honor a father and mother that are flippant and obligatory. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Here's your card. Don't bother me again till next Mother's Day. None of those days are intended to mean you should honor your mom one day out of the year and then 364 days out of the year just forget about her or your father. That's not the point. There's a difference between flippant and obligatory and meaningful honor. And the same is true for how we honor leaders in the church. Our love and our appreciation should be significant, should be meaningful. And I admit that all by itself, this will sound like a very self-serving message because I'm one of the elders, but that's part of the advantage of going through scripture verse by verse. You, you cover all that's there. But it's a simple concept. Love them, appreciate them, respect them. The question then is, how do you do that? I've really done all the explaining that needs to be done for these verses. It's, a, again, a simple concept. But for the time we have left, I want to point you towards some application how do you, as an individual member, how do, how do we collectively as a church, how do we honor and appreciate our leadership? I'm going to give you six ways. And just so you know, the majority of them, they're not going to come right out of the text. So this is going to be a little bit more like a topical sermon as opposed to an expository message. But hopefully it prods your thinking. It's, it's a good thing to think about. It's a good, um, it's, an, it's an important characteristic of a strong church. Six ways to honor the leaders. Number one, know who they are. Very basic. Know who they are. You cannot honor or respect your leaders if you don't know who they are. If you're a member of our church, if you're a member of First Bilingual Baptist Church, you should know who the elders are. We have seven of them. Occasionally people rotate off or new members come up, but, but you should know who they are. We're not a giant church with 30, 40 elders, and I only know a few. You should know them for the most part. I'm going to name them for you right now. Hopefully you can start naming them yourself, see if you check your answers, see if you got all of them. We have seven. I will list them for you in the same order they come up in our website, alphabetically by last name. I'll just give you the first name, though. It's, it's Bruno, Derek, Luis Luis, Mario, 
Richard, Mike. Okay, those are our elders. Bruno, Derek, Luis, Luis, Mario, Richard, Mike. If you're a member of our church, I assume most of those names are, who in the world are this? You know who they are. You know who they are. If there's a handy way to remember all those names, I'll let one of you figure that out. But every time I write an email, I'm going, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. Those are the elders. You know who they are. It's not unreasonable, given the size of our church, that you know the names of our current elders, but beyond their names, you know them to some degree. You know them a little more personally. I don't expect every member to know every elder to the same degree, but there should be at least one or two elders that you have a closer relationship with. And if that's not the case, and you're a member of our church, then something is, is not right. Something can be improved, either on our end as elders or on your end as a member. I, I mentioned last week that leaders in, 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 in the church are to be, like verse 12 says, among the church. We, we have responsibility as elders to reach out personally to members. But our responsibility doesn't erase your responsibility to, one, receive it, and to, two, reach out as well, to, to make connections with elders, Invite them into your life. Make connections with them so you can see into their life better. Part of the reason this matters, a big part of the reason this matters, is because in the Bible, elders are called not just to rule. They're called to be an example to the flock. I'm not, other than preaching, what am I being an example to you of? The assumption is you're seeing other aspects of my life. To the Corinthians, Paul said to the whole church, be imitators of me, meaning they looked into his life. Twice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says to the church, imitate me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, remember he says, don't let anyone look down on you because of your, because of your youth, but he said, be an example to the believers. He says the same thing to Titus in chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 5, elders are told there to be examples to the flock. This is the pattern God has designed for the local church, and it implies some measure of connection. Kids, two, three, four, five, six, even as they grow, they look like their parents physically, but also in the way that they speak, in the types of food that they eat, in the sports teams they like or don't like, in, in fashion maybe, you look like your parents. That's God's design, and that's the design for the church. You are to look like the elders. You should be able to just look into their life, and that should have an effect on you. Uh, you keep your place here in First Thessalonians. Jump forward just a few books to Hebrews, one of, one of the larger books in the New Testament, and, and near, near the end of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 13. It's an important passage. You might know it already. You can mark it if you like. It's a good passage to keep in mind when you deal with your relationship with elders. Hebrews 13, verse 7. The author there says, remember your leaders. It could be that they were separated from them because of persecution. It could just be a call to keep them in mind. Remember your leaders. Who, who are they? Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So if you want to imitate the leaders that God has placed in your life, you need to know who they are. You need to be able to see into their life, look into their marriage, look into their family, see their faith and imitate it. You can go back now to First Thessalonians. Here's the second way to honor church leaders. Number two, know what they do. So know who they are, and secondly, know what they do. It's not enough to say, well, I can name all the elders. I know their wives. I know their kids' names. But, but the picture that the Apostle Paul paints for us here is one where the church 
understands the contribution the leaders make. I told you last week, the literal translation, and even told you today, the literal translation is that a church needs to know its leaders. And if you notice, Paul doesn't mention pastors or elders by name. And he doesn't even list them by title. He never says the word pastor or elder. That could be an indication that the church, even though it's already been established, is so young, there's no formal structure. It's possible. There are no formal elders yet or formal pastors. But even if, if there aren't, there are still men, and in this case men, rising up to teach, to shepherd, to pastor the church. He may even be including other people who are leading in different ways, women, younger men, older women, older men. We don't know, we don't know exactly what's going on. It's a new church, but, but that's a possibility. Another reason he doesn't say the word pastors or elders could be because he wants the church to focus not on the title that these men have, but on their work. And when I say work, I don't mean their job. Here's what elders should do. Here's the job description on a piece of paper. I'm talking about what they actually do for the good of the church. I can connect the name of a man to the work that he's doing. When I was a kid, and this might be the same for for many of you, when I was a kid, I didn't give a thought to what my mom and dad did. You wake up, you brush your teeth, you didn't buy a toothbrush, you didn't buy a toothpaste, but it's there in the drawer. And when the toothpaste goes bad, there's a, uh, when the toothpaste runs out, there's a new one. When the toothbrush goes bad, there's a new one. You don't give a thought to that stuff. Things just happen. Clothes is dirty, and then it's clean. I didn't realize all the work my parents were putting into sustaining a home, getting us to school, bringing us home, allowing us to do all the extracurricular things that we did. But as I grew up, especially now that I have my own kids, you, you begin to realize, wow, there's a lot of work it takes into maintaining a home and raising kids. I now understand what my parents did for me. And in a similar way, we, we need to be able to step back once in a while and consider the work that goes into serving the church that's ultimately aimed at helping us all look more and more like Christ. And this goes for a lot of the ministries in our church, not just, not just preaching. Sunday sermon is the easy one because I'm, I'm public, I'm on staff of the church. But what about all the other stuff our, our church does? We get up here, we sing a song, nothing's happening by itself. Somebody had to choose songs. Someone had to play the songs. Leaders are singing for you. Bino's playing on the piano. Someone makes the file with the lyrics. Someone's making sure the, the PowerPoint is running. Someone makes sure the sound system is working. We tend to only care when there's a problem, but when everything goes well, we, we forget. There's, there's work that went into that. We have ushers who collect our offering. We have ushers who help you make sure when you forget your bulletin, like you do every week, you raise your hand and they get you a bulletin. And you're grateful for them. We've got, during the first hour, even now, nursery workers watching little kids We've got the teachers with the kids and the youth and the adult classes now. Someone had to choose curriculum or make curriculum. The teacher had to prepare himself or herself for the class. That takes work. Most of you probably had a cup of coffee and a piece of bread. There is no delivery truck coming, dropping off fresh bread, ready to go. Here's the coffee, here's the bread. That's not how it works. Someone had to do the work. Someone drives over to the bakery, picks up the box of bread. They bring it back. Their car smells like bread for a couple days. Someone prepares the bread, they chop it. Someone brews the coffee. Someone passes it out to the kids. Someone makes sure all the supplies are there so you can put creamer and stir it. That takes work. 
If you're in an FLG, someone, the host home you're in, they probably cleaned the house before you came. They cleaned the bathroom. Somebody had to make the meals. Somebody had to make the snacks. That doesn't just happen all by itself. Someone's gonna clean up after you're gone. We got the stuff in the announcements, upcoming summer events. The youth are going to camp. They're going on a road trip. The, the, the kids' camp's gonna be here. Someone has to put that together, not just the actual day, but the planning behind the scenes. Last week, we had a dinner. We had a members meeting. We all go upstairs. We enjoy a nice meal. Someone had to prep that. Someone had to go pick up the food, bring it back, pull out the plates, serve us. These are all things that we, we know they're not happening magically, but we don't always think about the work behind making it possible. To use Paul's word from verse 12, someone labored to make that happen. Someone put the work in. Keep that in mind. This leads me to the third way to honor leaders, and that's just the next logical step. You know what they're doing, but number three, you need to appreciate their work. Appreciate their work. So you take a moment not just to know that work was done, but to appreciate the fact that it was done. Look again at verse 13. He says he wants them to esteem the leaders very highly in love because of their work. Paul makes a direct connection between our appreciation and the leader's work. That's the mentality Paul wants. They, they work hard. Members need to be aware of and they need to recognize the work leaders put into the church for its edification. Leaders, like spiritual mothers and fathers, labor for the flock. And rather than take it for granted, the members should appreciate it. They should honor that work. So as you think about the work that goes into making church ministry possible, you should stop and number one, give thanks to God for that. Praise him for the way that he's used people to serve in the church. And then as God gives opportunity, express appreciation to those people as well. Appreciate their work. A fourth way to honor leaders, and this is just an example of appreciation, is provide for their work. Provide for their work. The last four uh, points are all going to be tied to work. Appreciate their work. And now, this is now point four, provide for their work. One New Testament example of honoring a leader's work is compensation. You make sure this man is, is cared for. This is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You can study or read it on your own. It's mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 5 as well. It's a continuation of, of the principle in the Old Testament, which was the Levites who performed all the sacrifices, they didn't own land. They didn't provide for themselves, but the, the, but, but the tithes that were given, which was required in the, in, the, in the Old Testament law, were given to support. And so the Levites earned a living by their ministry. Well, you see that repeated in 1 Timothy chapter 5, at least the principle. He says this, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And in a general sense, again, honor, respect, admiration, but he's speaking more specifically. He means compensation. He says, for the scripture, he uses two, two other passages, one uh, in Deuteronomy, one in uh, Luke, actually. He says, for scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. 
In the Old Testament, Paul goes on to say, in the Old Testament, God told them, don't cover the ox's mouth. The ox is pulling the stone that's grinding the grain. And a stingy master said, no, put a muzzle on him. I don't want him eating the grain. Well, the point Paul's making is when an animal or an employee works, he should be compensated. In this case, I'm the ox. I'm doing, I'm doing some of the work. Don't let him starve, basically. Make sure he's provided for, and I am fully provided for. I'm grateful to you guys as a church. I'm grateful for um, the way you've provided for me and for my family. I'm not here to petition for a raise. What, what, what you allow me to do uh, what, uh, basically allows me to focus my attention on, on what I'm doing here at church. But just as an example, Mike was here and Alex, we had a pastor's meeting this week, and we were talking about this idea of relationships in the church and connecting with the church and one of the pastors there said, well, I meet a lot with church members. I take them out to lunch. And my church provides me a line in the budget for eating meals with members, pastoral meals with members. He gets a certain amount per the year. And he gets reimbursed or used a church credit card. I don't know how it works. And he said, so the whole church knows, hey, ask me out to a meal. We'll go out. It's on the church. There's money for that. I'm not advocating for that, but, 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 it's, but it's an example of a church that, that valued the connection between elders and members, and so they provide for it. Another example of honoring and, and enabling pastors to work would come in the next verses, 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, which might seem unrelated, but there is a related principle. He says there, 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is an expression of honor because it enables an elder to continue serving. On the one side, it, it causes you to be very cautious about who you bring on as an elder. Paul said to Timothy, hey, don't lay hands on anyone too hastily. We understand that no one is above correction. In fact, the next verse he says, if, if there's an error, rebuke them publicly. But for those men who have given themselves to serve the church's elders... Be very careful, Paul says, about allowing others to slander them or to defame them or to tarnish their reputation without corroborating witnesses. So that principle, similar to compensation, expresses honor and it makes sure an elder can continue in his work without being unnecessarily inhibited. A fifth example of honoring church leaders is cooperate in their work. To provide for their work and now cooperate in their work. Since the elders are working for the edification of the church, you honor them by cooperating in that work. When it's Saturday and mom is trying to clean the house, it's not helpful if you decide to just walk around the house eating popcorn and chips, dropping it all over the floor. She's trying to clean the house. You need to put into practice what's trying to be accomplished. That, that's the same is true for the church. You need to do what we as elders are expecting you to do. You need to practice the things we're teaching you. Being a faithful member is much more than just showing up. Showing up, I think that's part of what's coming in the serving others class. It's important. It's a big deal to show up. But it's more than that. And we don't want to forget that. Otherwise, you end up like the kid who got mad because he felt like his baseball coach was too demanding, expecting too much from him. And so he told his coach, hey, hey, give me a break. I'm here every practice. I haven't missed a single practice. I'm here every day. And the coach said, yeah, so are the mosquitoes. It's not enough just to be there. There's more that's expected. We as elders, we care about seeing you on Sundays. But please don't think that just 
keeping a chair warm is enough. We want to know that you are putting into practice the things you're hearing. We want to know that the Christian life is meaningful to you. We want to know that you're taking deliberate steps to grow and to walk in Christ-likeness. Here's how the Apostle John said it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That was the joy of a spiritual father. They're walking in the truth. We as elders, we want to know that you're working for the same thing we are. We want to know that you're cooperating with us. Another well-known passage, same chapter we were in earlier, Hebrews 13, says this. Hebrews 13, 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them, let your leaders do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You don't want to be a stubborn member. You don't want to be an unwilling member. That's not going to help you. That's not going to help anyone. That's going to make our job more difficult. Uh, Those of you who are teachers, my wife taught one year kindergarten, and you knew there were students that were a, a pleasure to have in class, and then there were the other kids. When you were grateful, they didn't come. That's not what we want to be doing as elders. Oh, they didn't come to the day's meeting. Wonderful. We're glad they're not here. That's not what you want. You want to be cooperative. You want to be moving in the same direction that we're trying to move. If you're a member of this church, we as your elders are assuming you want to honor and serve Jesus Christ. You don't want to be, that's what Jesus told Paul. Why are you kicking against the goads? The analogy there was it was an ox that you would prod with the goat. A goat is like a long stick, little, little, little knife, pointy thing on the end. You would prod the ox and let him move forward, but the ox would, would kick back. He said, don't, don't do that. Cooperate what we're trying to do. Based on our membership covenant, we assume you value corporate worship, personal holiness, Biblical stewardship, evangelism, prayer, mutual care, church unity. These things should matter to you. That's the confession. That's the, that's the commitment you're making when you become a member. So you honor the elders when you show up at church. I understand there are times when you can't. So I'm not trying to say every time you miss church, there's a pro, you know, to the degree that you're able, things happen, I get. But you honor the elders when you show up at church. You honor the elders when you show up on time. You honor the elders when you're there in a Bible Sunday school class. You're honoring the elders when you're part of an FLG, when you're, when you're serving others, when you're here for our, for our church prayer meeting. You honor the elders when you take deliberate steps to grow in your knowledge of the Bible. Your, your daily or regular Bible reading is part of cooperating with what the elders want in your life. Those are all examples. You can talk about other examples. We want you to support the same things that we support. It would be as if you showed up at the gym and you got a personal trainer and for two hours you're with your personal trainer twice a week, but in between those you're going to Tommy's and Rio's Pizza and Yum Yum Donuts and and spend all the money you want there and then go back and tell the trainer, all right, fix me. You want to go, we want to be doing the same thing they're doing. Cooperate. That's honoring the elders. Last of all, this is number six. You honor the church, you honor the leaders of the church if you join in their work. 
join in their work. So know who they are, know what they do, appreciate their work, provide for their work, cooperate in their work, and lastly, join in their work. Cooperating in their work was focused primarily on your own spiritual health. But joining in the work means that you realize that you're also gonna be used by God to grow and to help others. You need to join in the work of growing your brothers and your sisters. You want to be a meaningful participant in the lives of your brothers and sisters in the church. That's part of the reason I pass out a members list at our members meetings. You see them, you know who they are. Every member has a responsibility in the church. We covered this earlier this year when we studied Ephesians 4. Christ gifted pastors and teachers to the church, but they're not supposed to be the only ones working. They're an initial spark to the fire, but he says you equip, the, the elders equip the saints for the work of ministry. Everybody's supposed to be doing the work of ministry. The end of that paragraph says Christ designed each part so that it's working properly so that the church builds itself up in love. So you hear about a brother and sister and they got a problem, spiritual problem, financial problem, and you go, oh, let me go tell the elders so they can do something about it. You can, that's, we're, we're glad to step in, but you're, you're part of the church. Do something, help, serve. For some of you, contributing and serving in the church means you're gonna teach, you're gonna, you're gonna sign up to, to volunteer in, in, in some uh, ministry or class. Obviously, it may not be all of you, but all of us, t- to one degree, have to open up our lives informally to encourage others. We, we, you, you play a part in the health of the church. Look at verse 13 one more time, and don't miss that last sentence. It says, you should esteem them highly in love because of their work. And then he says, be at peace among yourselves. That's not a shift in topic. Well, let me talk about honoring the elders, Now I want to talk about peace. That is how you honor the elders. Every parent knows you're getting in the car, you're going on a road trip, you're going to be in the car for three, four hours, maybe 18, 10 hours, and you tell the kids, sit down, stop fighting. Because part of honoring mom and dad is living at peace. You're a peacemaker in the home. You're a peacemaker now in the church. Hebrews 10 reminds us that we all have a job description. We are not to forsake the gathering, so show up there. But when you're there, what do you do? You don't just keep the seat warm. You're there to stir up one another to love and good deeds. You are in the body of Christ to encourage others And the author of Hebrews says we are to do it more and more as we see the day drawing near. So every time you see something in the news or in the world and it reminds you, man, this world is is going down. We're in a tough spot. It's gonna get worse. That should also trigger in your mind, I need to encourage my brothers and my sister to stay faithful. That's God's design for the unity of the church. We're gonna enjoy the unity next week. We're gonna come, we're gonna have services here, then we're gonna go to the picnic. Some of you are going to be there early, helping set up, helping you stay later to tear down. But the expression of unity in the church is not just that we enjoy one another's company. We'll be playing, I'm sure, volleyball or softball or kickball or whatever. Those are good things. We're going to enjoy a meal together. But, but true biblical unity means we're moving in the same direction and we're helping one another stay in the group and we're accomplishing the same purpose. That purpose is to grow into the image of Christ for the glory of God and to see others do the same. That's what the household of God does. That's what unites us as a church. 
So let me close with just one verse from Philippians chapter one. You can turn there if you want, the end of chapter one, Philippians one, verse 27. Great reminder about church unity. It's Paul's heart for the church, even though he's not with them. But that means it's Jesus' heart for the church. Philippians 1, 27. It says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that, Paul says to them, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. This is the reputation I want for the church. I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what God wants. That's what the Lord of the church wants for us. He wants us striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you have placed us in a body where we can see others, be encouraged by others, where we ourselves can encourage others. And all this is is not easy. We are sinners. We continually stray. We're continually distracted by the things of this world, but we sharpen one another. We pray you would keep us from the foolishness of living in isolation. We pray you would give us elders a deepened burden to persevere, to sweat, to work for the church, to serve and to connect with them and to speak into their lives for their own spiritual good. And we pray that that would bear fruit in our church, that we would be a loving church, an encouraging church, one in which brothers and sisters encourage one another, remind one another to walk in love, to pursue righteousness and holiness. Father, we need one another. We're grateful for the way that each member demonstrates a different facet of your eternal, infinite grace. I pray that our unity, our love, would make us stand out in our communities, in our families, and as a result, more people would come and hear the message of Christ and respond in humble, repentant faith. We ask for Christ's glory. Amen.